Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show, coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska, where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Welcome, everybody, to the Must Read Alaska show. Your host today is myself, John Quick. Suzanne is out today, so I get the great pride of being the host today. And we have Scott accompanying us as our person on the soundboard. And you are in for a treat today, folks. I'll tell you that much. We have Commissioner Kelly Chewbacca on the line, and she's going to be answering some amazing questions. But first, I want to remind everybody out there that if you enjoy this podcast, that you need to like this podcast, to share this podcast, to uh, leave us a review, because really, we do this podcast for you all. And uh, every review we get helps get that podcast out to more and more and more and more people. So we appreciate you listeners, and we appreciate you chiming in, and we appreciate all of the interactions we get on Facebook and Twitter and Parler and MeWe and the list goes on. And we just want to thank everybody out there. We had our 15th million, 15th million view on our website this last week. And we just surpassed 16,000 followers on Facebook. So we are pretty amped over here at the Must Read Alaska show. Uh, first, what's going on in the, in the Kenai? So we just had the Nikiski uh, talent show, if you will. Uh, we have it at the North Kenai Chapel every year. We had the illustrious talent show last night. It was amazing. It lasted four hours. And I'll tell you what, it had me hooting and hollering. I uh, ended up signing my wife up for the talent show. She didn't know until she got there, but she did have a good laugh at it. She's a trooper. And uh, the uh, political news we got going on the Kenai Peninsula is uh, we have a mayor, again, Charlie Pierce, strong conservative, who is fighting against a bloated budget. And he is doing a fabulous job. He's got great folks on the assembly that are helping him out. And he is going to be battling against the teachers union uh, and the teacher union leadership in the next month. Because what he has done is they have proposed a $53 million budget for the school and he's countered it with a 43. It's one of the lowest budgets ever offered to the school uh, district in the history of what I can remember. So. If you're on the Kenai Peninsula and you're listening, I want to encourage you to chime in uh, into the assembly meetings, into the school board meetings, because uh, our budget can't allow for a $53 million line item for the schools this year. It just simply can't when revenue is down 17%. But moving on, we have an amazing guest, like I said, and we are going to be seeing if she, later in the show, if she is going to be entertaining a run against Lisa Murkowski, but we'll, that will come later. But Kelly, Commissioner Kelly Chewbacca, welcome to the Mustard Alaska show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you today. Thank you. So for those of, for those of folks that are listening that maybe have been hiding under a rock and they don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? what you did before you came to Alaska and, and what are some of those things that you brought with you in terms of accomplishments when you landed here in Alaska? 
Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for that opportunity. So I was born and raised here. It's uh, important to know my parents moved up here. Um, they were actually homeless when they came. So I think that's a story a lot of Alaskans can relate to. They just wanted to start life over again, try something new. They were drawn to all the opportunity in Alaska. They're great outdoors. And they started by living in a tent. So I don't think that they intended to be homeless, but they just went camping for a really long time. And then it got longer and longer. <laughs> and it became very well into winter and that wasn't working out great for them. So they decided to work on their way up through the, what we would know as the American dream ladder, getting small odds and ends jobs, getting better and better jobs. Um, my mom actually had a, a clerk job for a guy named Tom Fink, who ended up becoming quite the Alaska figure later in life. It's funny how our small community weaves its way together. Um, mom ended up becoming an auditor for what I knew as those oil companies that cycle in and out of the Gold Tower in Anchorage. My dad ended up being a electrician, an IBW electrician for ATU, which then became ACS. So he was working with ACS when it first started. We lived out in the Matsu Valley for a couple of years, and uh, those were great memories as a little kid. And then I grew up on the side of Muldoon Road for a little bit, and then uh, eventually I grew up on the hillside. Now, it was not the glamorous hillside when I started out there. It was a bunch of unpaved gravel roads and grizzly bears, but that's what I remember. And um, Alaska just really changed the course of our entire family destiny. My parents ended up seeing us get into college. And then if you can believe this, I went to Harvard Law School. Who goes to Harvard Law School? <laughs> that was, I remember the day I got my acceptance letter and I just ran and jumped off the steps at the post office, like, wow. You know, it's just this amazing dream come true. So we really just had like this fairy tale story of our family going from homeless to Harvard, if you will. And really because of all the opportunity that we had here because of Alaska. So after law school, I got this incredible job in Washington, D.C. The goal was to go down and pay off law school loans. But my incredible job was with the government. And it takes a long time to pay off loans when you work for the government. But I started out in what we know as the internal watchdog offices for the government, and I started at the Department of Justice. And I ended up having a great career for about 17 years in these offices. They're called the Office of the Inspector General, and most federal agencies have them. So I worked in the Department of Justice. I worked in the intelligence community, which are the 17 agencies that are involved in um, overseeing the national security apparatus known as terrorists, spies, and weapons of mass destruction. And otherwise, it's going to be a really short show if I tell you anything else. So <laughs> then I moved over to the Federal Trade Commission and did internal affairs there. And then I moved on to the U.S. Coastal Service, where I, in the internal affairs shop, I got to be their chief data officer, using data to figure out how to help the Postal Service run really well. And then you asked, you know, well, then what brings you home, right? How did I get back here? And the answer is my family is still here. I've got a sister who lives in Colorado, but otherwise our entire extended family has always been in Alaska. So um, John, Alaska is number one in my heart, um, but it's just, it hasn't been doing well. If we're just really honest with each other, the opportunity that my family had when I was growing up is not the opportunity Alaskans have had for a long time. And I've known that because Alaska is um, where all my friends and family are, our parent, my parents here, my, my extended family's here. And 
We've watched things like our economy really languish for a decade or longer. We've drained $14 billion out of our, our state savings account, if you will, our bank account running the operations of the state. Our education scores have slid so that only three out of 10 of our kids are proficient in math or in reading. Our crime has gone up to the point that US News and World Report ranked us number one in crime in the nation. And Anchorage is the number one crime city. I, I'm not worried about New York anymore, right? They're worried about Anchorage. Um, so you watch all these things and these are the people I love and this is the state I love. And so when Governor Dunleavy ran uh, for governor, I was watching his campaign and I just was really inspired that we actually could do something about all of these problems and we can turn our state around. And my skill set, and when people ask, you know, what do you do and how do you do it? Well, it's inspections and audits and investigations and data. And we'll really could just wrap all that up and say, it's like being a bureaucracy whisperer. I know how to make government work well. And that's not an oxymoron. <laughs> there is such thing as good government. And if we could maybe bring better government to Alaska, where we could reduce government, reduce the cost of government, but not substantially reduce the service that Alaskans are receiving. Um, that would really make things work better. We would have to we take less out of our state bank account, take less from oil revenues, which would allow more business development and oil exploration. I mean, we could pay out more of our PFD. These are all things we could do if we could get our government operation and spending under control. So I sent a cold email to Mike Dunleavy right after he ran and won his governor race. And I said, hey, this is my skill set. If you have room for me on your team, I'd love to come home and serve. We were on the phone a couple of days later, and he said, I've got room for you. Come on home. And that's how I came home to Alaska. So you're sitting in D.C. If you could describe it with one word, what was the thing that got you excited about Dunleavy becoming governor uh, and making that step to move literally across the country with your whole family? Um, I will say vision because without vision, people perish. And I think what I've seen in Alaska is for a long time, we've been suffering for a lack of an idea or vision of how to change things around. And what I heard him articulate was a path forward. We started the administration a couple of years ago with a clear vision on how we were going to transform Alaska. He was prioritizing public safety he was prioritizing budget cuts. We were prioritizing education, the way to turning Alaska around. We've got to invest in the children who are our future. Um, there was just a very clear direction of, um, another thing was transparency in the government, restoring trust in government, which is my, my, what my career background is in. Um, those are the things I think Alaskans value. Those are the things that need to happen if we're going to turn these key pillars around that are going to mean success for our state. He had the vision to do that. And that's what resonated with me all the way across the United States and really compelled me with a conviction to come home and say, this is something I can get on board with. That's awesome. Well, you're somebody who also has a, uh, a very strong Christian background. Uh, I think, I believe you and your husband are both pastors, ordained ministers. You've, you've either planted a church or been pastors of a church for quite some time. How does faith play a role in your day-to-day -day operations of the Department of Administration, who has a $400 million budget and oversees all the union contracts, all 25,000 
full-time equivalents or close to that. It's a big job. How does faith play a role in how you act as a leader throughout the day-to-day? Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, I think the faith helps me in a couple different areas. First, faith keeps you humble. Um, you know, there's a there's an aspect of we don't have all the answers. We need other people. I, I need other people's counsel. And it really takes all of us together. It takes all Alaskans in order to do this. And so the, the aspect of my faith really helps me with that, with the humility. Um, my faith also has helped me to know that I value all people and valuing people is an orientation and leadership that's really critical. Everyone is essential. Everyone has purpose. Everyone has value. There's value in diversity of thought and diversity of what we would call those standard demographic variables, diversity in race, diversity in religion, diversity in general is just really critical to valuing people. I really believe that people are Alaska's most valuable and precious resource. And the more we can access, include, and um, and see people as our most valuable resource, the stronger we're going to be as Alaskans. Um, faith gives me hope for the future. There's a lot that we can look around at and just feel really despairing, especially as 2020 came upon us. But it's faith that lets us see beyond the present circumstance and think in a solution-oriented mindset. And I I would say that that's probably what gave me a lot of resilience through 2022, deliver some of the solutions that we had in our department. Um, Faith also gives us grace for people's mistakes. And so that gives us permission, especially in our department, to innovate. When mistakes are okay, um, then you can start dreaming and you can experiment and come up with innovation. And that's really a great place to be when people know that they can contribute to a team in that way. And then finally, I think this is one that a lot of people can relate to. Faith is grounding. Um, faith is a place of peace and centeredness. As some people would call it mindfulness. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a place for meditation. And just to, to get through those stormy and rocky times, I go back to my faith. That's awesome. Well, I know you've been at it now for about two years now as a commissioner. And we've seen um, we've seen some great reports on some of the innovations that you've done in streamlining processes and streamlining procedures. Can you touch base on maybe two or three of the accomplishments that you and your staff have been able to tackle and and kind of talk us through not only the high level of what it is, but how does that impact the every day to day Alaskan? Yeah, sure. Um, We'll start out with some of the changes that we made as a result of COVID. The governor came to us at the very beginning of COVID and said, we need to keep workers safe and we need to keep the government open. You know, a lot of things shut down during COVID, but state government never did. And that was because of his brilliant idea. He said, can you digitize government so that our workers can do government from home, as many of them as possible? And Our DOA team was able to pivot our operations on a dime. A lot of people don't know that we have the largest workforce in the state, and we've got about 15,000 employees. Only about 100, 120 of them were teleworking before COVID. That's less than 1%. In just a couple of weeks, our Office of Information Technology, OIT, was able to support 6,000 people teleworking from home. That required setting up a massive telework infrastructure. They had to coordinate with our division of personnel. 
and working with our unions be able to establish personnel policy changes that supported that. We needed to transform our personnel management system. It was based on seeing people in the office and managing work, our supervisors managing work in the office. We had to now be able to, how do you support teleworkers who are working from home? How do you know that they're working? How do they know what to work on when you can't just walk down the hall and hand out assignments? We were doing so many things on paper, John. We were doing timesheets on paper, recruitment and onboarding on paper, performance evaluations. We required people to travel by car or in an airplane for training. We required people to go to meeting rooms for meetings. We just did all of our business assuming we could be in buildings. And so we were able to move all of that to online or digitizing our, um, our timesheets. We have 30% of them digital now. We're moving even more of them digital this year, but all the rest of those things that I talked about, we've turned into digital interfaces. And so the, the way we're doing business has totally transformed. Why does that matter to your listeners? The exciting thing is when we've transformed our business practices this way, it's given us the flexibility to potentially not just be the largest place to work, but to be the best place to work. Because now you could live where you want to live, like you're out in the Kenai Peninsula, and you could work for the state that you love. So we have, in my department, employees who live on the Kenai Peninsula and are working for us today through telework, which means that what I'm excited about is I believe, just like I just told you in diversity, I believe that our state of Alaska workforce is going to represent Alaska best when we look most like Alaska, not when we look most like Anchorage, Juneau, and Fairbanks, but when we look like all of Alaska. And wouldn't it be amazing if just because of a collateral consequence of COVID, we're able to recruit best talent from all over Alaska. And I'll give you a, for instance, um, I was able to interview uh, several, many people for one of my director positions in DOA. And the best person qualified for my position happens to be a native Alaskan gentleman in a rural village in Southeast Alaska. And so I currently have one of my directors teleworking from a rural Alaskan village. What if we could do that for many positions, like hundreds of positions in the state of Alaska? I think that we serve Alaskans better when we look like Alaska. And I think that that's amazing opportunity economically um, in diversity of talent for all of Alaska. That's awesome. I think that, uh, you know, to, to kind of put this into people's perspective, you know, one of the easy things to even for myself to complain about government is I look at my road and it's not plowed in time or it's not graded in time and government has a hard enough time literally mobilizing one person to go plow their road and you figured out a way to mobilize 6,000 people onto a certain task. So I think that that's a big, big accomplishment. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that um, you have uh, centralized for lack of a better word in terms of HR and procurement. We don't need to put dollar values on it, but just so that people get a sense of, you know, these departments used to be basically out doing all their own things, right. you know, with their own list of five things that they that they had stuff go through their checks and balances and each checks and balance was different. Can you talk a little bit about just some of those efficiencies? I think are a big deal because you had, you know, 15 different departments or whatever it is all doing their own thing and you've brought those together. Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. So for your listeners, procurement is the system that our state uses to acquire goods and services. So 
Before Governor Dunleavy, this system was divided among every department. What did that mean for our state government? That meant that no single office had accountability for about $840 million in government contracts or the 113 employees who currently execute them. So without those statewide processes, every department was operating under a different system. That means that employees are duplicating data entry that costs us time. Sometimes we're paying twice for the same product or service and it prevents the state from getting discounts through volume purchases. I like to think about that like vendor vulturing where the vendors are circling the state like vultures and they can just pick us off. They can sell us the same thing multiple times even though we only need one of them or they can, they can just easily um, take advantage of our decentralization because we don't have one department talking to another. So we need a consolidation so that the state would be able to achieve those significant cost savings statewide and just have visibility into what we're doing. So Governor Dunleavy, shortly after he became governor, he passed an administrative order that said, we need more consistency and control over procurement. We're gonna reduce those redundancies in purchasing. We're gonna achieve cost savings. We're gonna streamline those processes. So we want statewide procurement to all be under DOA. That means that some procurement is gonna stay in the departments because some de procurement is really specific to just that one department. So you've gotta understand good government doesn't consolidate everything, nor does it federate everything. You've gotta be smart about what you're doing. So where we once were doing procurement all 14 different ways, as of January, we've now completed that consolidation and we're now set up to do procurement the same consistent way across the state. We've got 64 dedicated Alaskans all within DOA committed to running smooth, efficient government. And it'll help us to save money through all of those um, procurement practices. We call it um, bulk purchasing. We're gonna reduce our redundancies and we're gonna do the strategic sourcing of our contracts to save us some money. We did something really similar with HR. Again, the governor came in and said, uh, we need an administrative order to consolidate our statewide human resources. People wonder, you know, what all does human resources cover? It covers things like recruitment and hiring, our performance management, our collective bargaining, discipline, grievances, complaints, investigations, our ADA accommodations, training, and even payroll. So all of those things were split up to some extent between all the different departments, which means we were doing them inconsistently. So that creates some um, confusion. It can open us up to grievances or even lawsuits. It creates inconsistencies, manual data entry. In fact, we had our HR officers, our actual HR staff, design and lead this particular consolidation. And they identified 70 process and efficiencies across the different departments. That's seven zero, not one seven. 70 process and efficiencies. And they said, you know, once we consolidate, we'll be able to use standardization and automation to get rid of these 70 inefficiencies in the first year. So we're excited about that and documenting it. Um, so we were doing it at 14 different ways. Now we have 166 HR staff in DOA. We just finished this consolidation as well that are gonna be able to not only provide all those services, but because of the um, efficiencies of a consolidation, we're actually gonna be able to improve the HR services we can provide departments and be able to do HR better, which is part of the strategy of becoming one of the best places to work. So you won't just get a government job, you'll get a great job. We'd like to be really competitive in our recruitment, retention, and hiring. So I think that's wonderful. And you know, one of the things I've 
I think uh, is a good point of clarification is this wasn't necessarily these lack of efficiencies, these lack of great processes, these lacks of great procedures wasn't because uh, your staff was lazy or they didn't want to do their job or they're just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. It was because nobody had the leadership to bring it together. I think that the point needs to be made that this is uh, not necessarily because the staff was unwilling. It's because the staff never had somebody to lead them in, through this process. Is that a fair statement? I think it's somewhat fair. I put an asterisk next to it. My understanding, well, first, I think our government employees are amazing. I've met a lot of government employees. They're so talented. I describe many of the people in DOA as imagineers. They've got phenomenal imaginations, and they also have the technical capacity, like an engineer, to, to put it into practice. And if you can tap into both of those skill sets, they can do amazing transformative things for our state. We've actually had consolidated services in the past and then federated and then consolidated and then federated. What we wanted to do with these consolidations is we actually wanted to do them right. And so what I've learned through my federal career is you can do government well, and then you can do it not so well. And I think one of the things we did in our data collection is, why hasn't this worked in the past? So they've consolidated before and then not really gotten the service level standards or um, the customer service they needed. And the departments were sort of left hanging and not getting what they needed from the consolidated service or from our department like they did before. So then it would get federated, but then that doesn't work for the state. And so there's a story there. So we tried to do the consolidation differently this time. The method by which you do government really matters. So it's not, does consolidation work? Does federation work? The answer is, eh, it depends how you do it. And so the how really mattered. And one of the things that was different this time is we really involved the employees, the subject matter experts in the how. It took a long time to do this, about a year and a half, but change management matters. And we also brought in some outside experts to fill some skill gaps that we don't have in knowledge and, and um, just knowing how to do these particular consolidations so that we would know how did the roadmap went, we would be able to lead through the change management process and ensure the collective successfulness of these efforts. That's awesome. So let's talk real quickly about license plates. Sounds so great. <laughs> last uh, month or so, we've had some license plate drama. And yes. can you real quickly tell our listeners, what is the process of getting a custom license plate? And what is the filters in which somebody could have a, have a sentence, or I mean, not a sentence, but words on there or not have words on there? What is the parameters and how do they go about it? Yeah, this was a really interesting um, issue that kind of came up. So the process is you come into the DMV and you put in an application for a customized license plate. And we have an electronic database that has words or phrases of words that are not allowed on your license plate. And that list is curated and collected. We now are adding in input from other uh, databases from other DMVs across the nation. And we collect it based on kind of updated terms and uh, that, are, that are culturally relevant. So there are, there are things that are happening, for example, in the last two years that would um, not be appropriate to the civic discussion, if you will, that we would want to have on a license plate to say, 
you know, that's probably going to be widely offensive. Let's not put that on the license plate. And otherwise, the terms under our statute are violent, vulgar, criminal is kind of your shorthand way of knowing. That's what the DMV is going to screen out. Um, otherwise, you get to have expression on your license plate is basically the shorthand way of saying it. What had happened in the recent drama is a term got through that was not screened out on in the electronic database. And so we've added all variations of that. You know, people can get really clever by exchanging letters for numbers or for symbols. And so we added all variations of those particular terms to the electronic list to make sure we would catch them going forward. And then made um, clear to Alaskans what our standards are for screening so that we can both balance the desire for expression and the desire for civility on license plates. We're also going through the process right now of rechecking all of the license plates that have been issued. There's about 60,000 of them to see if there's any others that have gotten through. I think going back all the way to the Murkowski administration to make sure that there isn't another one that slipped through the electronic screening list that we would say, you know what, that doesn't pass the civility threshold of violent, vulgar, criminal, and we need to pull it back. So that's the short answer. Did I cover everything? I think you did. And I think the the kind of the bare bones of it is there was already systems in place for folks that are listening that there's probably always going to be stuff that slips through the cracks. Um, but these are things that you are charged by state statute to uphold. And if people don't agree with them, they can go to their elected officials to try to change that. Um, the last question I have for you, we're oh, kind John, of running we, out of time. There was one, yep. there was one other category, um, demeaning to a people group is the other category on that list. All right, one other question. That's good. So there's one other question. So um, Commissioner, you are very well connected. I think you're, you're probably uh, very humble when you talk about your, uh, your career that you had before you moved to Alaska. And, you know, you know, people in DC, not the average person can go do their career with whatever, whatever they're going to do for 1520 years, and have the connections that you have probably made along the way in DC and some of the biggest circles of the DC crowd. Right. Um, there are very few people that could have those connections and then potentially run for office. Have you, have you considered running for Murkowski's seat when she is up? And is that something that's on the table? So John, there are a lot of people who've asked this question and talked to me about this. I think it's a, first, it's a super honoring and humbling question to even be considered for this, um, especially by Alaskans who I love so much in a state that I love a lot. It's a, it is not an insignificant thing to run for office, let alone for the U.S. Senate. That's a really big seat. Um, I'm always interested in what I can do to help Alaska and anything I can to advance this state. But right now I'm focused on what I can do within the Dunleavy administration. I came home to support our governor. I am really enjoying these things that I can do within the Department of Administration to totally transform the way that we do government and the experience that an Alaskan has within our state. And that's what I'm focusing on. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Commissioner, for joining us. We learned a ton about what it looks like to run the Department of Administration uh, through your lens. And we thank you for the work that you're doing. And for those of you that are listening, you can check out all of our stories at mustreadalaska.com. And uh, if you're on that website, on the right-hand side, there is a donate button. If you want to help support all the work we're doing, 
and uh, keeping that conservative news out there, every dollar that you donate helps fight the left stream media. And so we want to thank you for listening. Uh, you can also catch us on uh, Facebook. You can catch us on Twitter. You can catch us on MeWe. You can catch us on Parlor, on Caucus Room. And uh, the list goes on. We also have an app out there. If you have an Android or an Apple phone, you can go onto the Google Play Store or the Apple Store, and you can download our app for free, which is awesome. It can be right at your fingertips anytime you want to view Must Read Alaska. So we also have a Wednesday edition. Scott is on the Wednesday edition of the Must Read Alaska show. So don't forget to tune in there. And until next week, we want to thank you and we want to wish you an amazing Monday and we hope to see you on Wednesday and we hope to see you next Monday and we want to appreciate you and thank you for listening. So thank you so much, Scott. Take care.